please turn your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. Part 2 of the message from hero to zero. Jonah chapter 1. And before I begin today, uh, I would like to make a particular statement about grace, about God's grace. Scripture says that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Jesus Christ, his Son. That's Isaiah 55, verse 6. And especially before becoming a Christian, and before the the power of the Holy Spirit entered our lives and indwelt us, immersed us, regenerated us, in order to help us increasingly resist sin, before that, every one of us, myself included, have sinned in many ways we wish we had not. Some of those sins were very severe. Very severe. Psalm 130 verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? The answer is nobody. Nobody. Yet there are certain sins that God reveals in His Word that are particularly offensive to Him. For instance, while they're both sin, God doesn't view the stealing of a classmate's pencil the same as a holocaust. He does not. And I know uh, there are women here who themselves have had an abortion. Others who have had uh, or committed indecent sexual acts. I don't know that because I'm clairvoyant. Um, The numbers are overwhelming. Overwhelming. When 52 million abortions have been committed, there are 52 million mothers. There are... uh, those who had the procedure, there are many more who were husbands, who were family members, who were doctors and nurses who sanctioned them as well. And because of the nature of our text today, portions of this message are going to be unusually pointed. And please understand, if you are washed in the blood of Christ, this is not a personal message to you to bring up remorse from your past. Please understand that. If you've never repented or asked God for forgiveness of your sins, it might be for you. But to all of us here who belong to Christ, to His body, this message should awaken the church to the issues of our modern day because, folks, the church has fallen asleep. The church has fallen asleep in America. And I'm going to begin by reading the first three verses of Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, so he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare and went down into it, to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. I know we normally call this Nineveh, Tarshish. That's how I'll refer to them. Um, If you were here with us last week, you received an introduction to the historical background of this book, the culture of Jonah. Uh, We learned how an early prophecy that Jonah had given uh, that, that that facilitated a great expansion of the northern kingdom of Israel under a king named Jeroboam II. Israel and King Jeroboam, they would have very much appreciated Jonah's prophecy, very much welcomed it, and consequently records 
historical records uh, that after now the kingdom has been divided from the ten tribes to the north and the two tribes called Judah to the south, history has recorded that Jeroboam became one of the most powerful and accomplished kings to ever rule the northern tribes of Israel. Very successful reign. However, we also discovered that Jeroboam was an evil, idolatrous king. Israel was a nation of spiritual harlotry. So after Jonah's initial prophecy, the one that prophesied they'd expand their borders and things would go well for them for a season, God later sent two more prophets named Amos and Hosea, and they were to warn Jeroboam and Israel that their prosperity would cease, their nation would collapse, and they would be cut off from the promised land entirely and carried away by their enemy Assyria into exile. Israel essentially replied, no, we won't. We don't believe you. Jonah prophesied of our expansion. We're experiencing expansion. Everything's going pretty well. Has been for years. But Amos, he was a seer. Scripture calls him a seer. And God gave him these visions. Yet the king's priest named Amaziah, he gave Israel's reply to Amos. This is their general reply, specifically through the words of Amaziah the priest. Go, you seer, flee away from the land of Judah, or, or to the land of Judah. You want him to go back to the southern kingdom. And there eat bread, and, and there do your prophesying, but no longer prophesy at Bethel. For it is a sanctuary for the king and a royal residence. Whoa. Sanctuary for the king. Let's not have the word of the Lord nearby that. After 40 years, approximately 40 years later, the prophet Isaiah, he would become the final word to Israel. It would be the the straw that broke the camel's back. Judgment had already been pronounced. uh, Isaiah, Isaiah then says to these northern tribes, for this is a rebellious people false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, notice Amos, you must not see visions. And to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Instead, they, meaning Israel, say, speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. Wow. Isaiah verse 30, if you want to look at that. That sounds like a lot of churches today, folks. Israel loved church, uh, uh, prophets that would tell them nice things. Loved them. Loved them. Pleasant words. Jonah had initially prophesied pleasant words. That would have made him really popular. A hero of sorts in Israel, we'd say. But now a new word of prophecy has come. A prophecy to Jonah that in the eyes of his countrymen will disintegrate his first, at least the image that he had from his first, while this same generation has already been told, or in short order will be told, by the prophet Amos and Hosea, that, their previous, uh, that the previous dominance of their enemy, Assyria, it's going to be restored. That's what they're being told. Assyria is going to come and get rid of you. Those will be the messages from Amos and Hosea, and we profiled those last week. And God's commission to Jonah was, Arise, go to the capital of Assyria, 
That's Nineveh. And preach repentance at this same time. Well, what's Jonah's response going to be? What will he do? I'm going to say one thing about a call to preaching, preaching God's word, a a call that uh, every man who is genuinely called by God to preach uh, has this sense that the preaching is naturally optimistic. Naturally, we are very optimistic. By experience, we're often very disappointed, experience-wise. But by nature, we're optimistic. I'm very optimistic at the preaching of God's Word. Not my ability of it. But God's Word doing what it says it will do. Hearing God's Word is how I came to faith. It's how you came to faith if you're a Christian. You heard it in one way or another. I'm very optimistic. Each time that I preach God's Word faithfully, in in harmony with His book, that it will achieve God's intended results. I'm very confident of that. God assures it. He says, My word which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me void. Without accomplishing what I desire, says the Lord, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it, right? God's word will not return void. And this is likely what Jonah's afraid of. He sees the writing on the wall. He doesn't want to play any part of it. It's noteworthy Jonah here is not described as receiving any burden in verse 1. Many of the prophets from Israel, not all, but many of the prophets most, are recorded as receiving along with the word of God a heavy weight or a burden with the message. This burden, we sometimes translate it into English as an oracle. It means heavy weight or burden. Malachi chapter 1 verse 1, for instance The oracle of the word of the Lord through Malachi. He had a really heavy burden. He had to say it. No, we don't see that word here uh, in this uh, book to Jonah. It's merely the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. No described burden. Let me ask you. As the word of the Lord is preached here, as it is taught here, as... You read it as you hear it, Bible life groups, study groups, on the radio, anywhere else where you're faithfully hearing the word of the Lord, do you feel any kind of burden? Is there any burden to respond with action? Or, after church, is it quickly dismissed and you go on about your day, sail away? Well, Jonah not only had no burden... He acts contrary to what God has said. I'm not going to cry against Nineveh. The reason is not because that they're so terrifyingly wicked. We will learn that later on in the book. But because Jonah, he reveals his own heart in chapter 4. It says, because I know God's going to be merciful. He knew it. If God would have provided Jonah the notion that he was that God was actually going to judge Nineveh, I bet Jonah probably would have pulled up a front row seat for that. I want to see this. But Jonah knew otherwise. He also knew that the flagrant idolatry committed by Israel was inviting God's wrath. He knew that. And if my suggested timeline from last week is correct, 
And, and Jonah was dispatched to Assyria after two severe plagues that they had, one in 765, the other in 759 B.C., then Jonah would have surely heard the preaching of Amos. He would have heard it. Consequently, Jonah would have realized that by God's word, judgment was coming to Israel. Israel was out. The Gentiles are in. Any picture there of anything that you see with Jesus? Israel out for disobedience. Gentiles, the door is open. Exactly as with Christ. Picture of Christ. What Jonah refused to do, failed to do. Later, Christ comes in fulfillment and does completely and entirely and grafts in the Gentiles into the church, into the, into the olive tree. The problem for Jonah is, if he goes and preaches repentance to Nineveh, and they respond, being the, the pagan nation, and then Israel is judged for their immorality, the problem is neither location is going to be a particularly pleasant place for an Israelite prophet after those happen, is it? Neither one's really going to be a good home. So Jonah, Jonah decides, you know, I think I'll go somewhere that's a little more stable. A little less trouble. How about Tarshish? Tarshish, we call it. The scripture reveals to us Jonah, Jonah as he hatches this really brilliant plan. He's got a great plan. God told him to arise. Jonah reasons to himself, I will arise. It's the exact same Hebrew word as we see in verse 2. Jonah arose. I guess you could consider that partial obedience. God said, Arise, he arose. Do we ever do that partial obedience and justify ourselves? You know, we, we, for example, I remember when I was young, things that people would do, what my peers would do, other things, not married yet or anything. And if you were a Christian especially, I wasn't when I was uh, still single. But as a Christian, you'll hear from time to time, it's like, I know he or her, uh, she or him, isn't a believer. Really like him. I know I can't marry him, though, because I'm a Christian. So I think I'll do, I'll just live with them for a while. Partial obedience. Partial obedience. Doesn't work out. God didn't want Jonah to partially obey. But he did not arise to obey God. Verse 3 says, Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now you've got a guy who is initially in the eyes of Israel a type of hero now in regard to fulfilling his ministry to the Lord, zero. He became a zero. And you're probably thinking to yourself, man, fleeing, fleeing from the Lord, that's a pretty dumb idea. Didn't you know that you can't flee the presence of the Lord? Actually, Jonah did know that. Jonah knew. Uh, Jonah's prayer uh, recorded in chapter 2 that he gives from the fish that we will see uh, later on, not today. Uh, that prayer suggests that he had a very intimate knowledge of the Psalms. And, and surely he was familiar with Psalm 139, which I read to you earlier, very famous psalm from King David, who ruled earlier on, before the kingdom split. So certainly, Jonah, as a prophet of God, was familiar with Psalm 139. 
Certainly he realized he couldn't flee the presence of the Lord. Can't do it. But he could flee the presence of where God was going to orchestrate the events that God wanted to achieve. You can run from that. He, he could see the stage set. He didn't want to play his part. He didn't want to memorize his lines. He didn't want to, to participate in what God was doing. The show must go on, but it's going to go on without me. That's what he said. A lot of times we'll run from responsibilities as Christians. I've experienced this myself. You, you know there's, there's something that you're supposed to commit to, you're supposed to be part of, you say, you know what, I really don't want the responsibility. I don't want to play a part in that stage. I'm going to move away. I'm going to run. Jonah, he didn't want to play a part. He wanted an early prophet's retirement in Tarshish. Why do I suggest that? Well, we, we realize that when a word or a phrase is repeated multiple times in a remote location of Scripture, especially in the Hebrew language, it, it, it shows emphasis. shows a lot of emphasis. Remember that. Things that are repeated in a very short area of Scripture, a passage, or especially in a verse, emphasis, big time. And twice in verse 3 we read that Jonah wanted to flee God's presence. That implies emphasis. He wanted out. And then three times in verse 3, in a single verse, we find the location he wants to flee to. Tarshish. Tarshish, Tarshish, Tarshish. In one verse. In Hebrew, screamer, uh, Scripture is screaming Tarshish out of a megaphone. Notice where he wants to go, is what it's saying. Why Tarshish? That's a good question, actually. Today we don't uh, know exactly where Tarshish was. We aren't 100% sure. We have a pretty good idea. Um, certainly it was someplace in the Mediterranean. Uh, if you have a study Bible, you probably have a note in it that says that there was a Greek historian named Herodotus that identified this location, location as Tartesis. And if that is accurate, which it probably is, but we can't state for certain, then it was a merchant city in southern Spain. Trading city. He was getting on a merchant ship to go somewhere named Tarshish. There you got a trading city uh, named Tartesis in southern Spain. Um, that's the best suggestion we have. And if it is right, Jonah is headed 2,000 miles in the opposite direction of Nineveh. 2,000 miles! You imagine how long that is in that day and age? You aren't hopping on a Boeing jet. But that's where he's going. Why so much emphasis on Tarshish? Why this location? For that answer, you're just going to have to come back next week. You're going to have to come back. Let's just say Tarshish would have made, probably made a really good location for retirement. And uh, I've done uh, some really good research and preparation uh, to defend that. Um, you're probably going to be in great awe. You'll have to come back. No, I'm just kidding. But since the balance, it's some good stuff, it's very intriguing. And since the balance of this message will cause you to completely forget about Tarshish, I figured why waste all that good information today? You're going to forget about it anyhow. So, let me say, just say that Nineveh, by comparison to Tarshish, would have been a very difficult ministry for an Israelite. 
would have, been, would have involved persevering. Not a great mission field for an Israelite. It was a city of great size, very large. The inner city walls encompassed eight miles, according to archaeologists. Eight miles. The outer limits of the city district that was the population of Nineveh, circumference of about 60 miles. That's a great city. Want to compare it to something? Let's compare it to something. It may have been, probably was the largest city of that day. If not, it was in the top three. Uh, just amazingly large city. Had a population upwards of 600,000 people in 750 uh, B.C. If this archaeology is accurate, the area of the city would have been 286 square miles. Four times the area of Port St. Lucie. Isn't that something? With approximately the same population density that we have here. A little over 2,000 per square mile. Way bigger. That, that's, the, that's the size of the city he was sent to go to. We'll talk about how he proclaimed that uh, in chapter 3 and how he reached them. And, and Jonah's commission, according to verse 2, it was, go cry against it. Their wickedness is very great. Wouldn't we say in this day and age, that's a very offensive thing to do. That isn't being very loving. Preach out or cry against a culture, a capital of a nation, Assyria. So many people say, that isn't very nice. Why don't you be more loving? We'll see why he can't be more loving. The NIV translates this as preach. Many translations say cry against Nineveh. The ESV says call out against them. And the Net Bible translates this simply as announce judgment. Announce judgment. Interestingly, the Hebrew, it doesn't imply a, a railing against. It doesn't imply an, an arrogant tongue lashing by the prophet. You know, so often we get that from the movies. You go to Hollywood and they, and they show the prophet of God, Right? A lot of convictions, slightly insane. Isn't that how a lot of people view anyone who has any conviction today? But, but he was to go and call out against them. Prophets are often seen as people who call down fire and brimstone, call down judgment. Folks, it's God who throws down fire and brimstone. That's his job. The prophet's job wasn't to bring the judgment. It was to announce the judgment was coming. With 100% accuracy, by the way. Yet 40 days in Nineveh will be destroyed. Folks, that's loving. That's loving. And as I've said on previous occasion, uh, we today, we have the prophetic word complete, made more sure, Peter says. In Revelation 22, it strictly warns, prohibits anyone from adding words to it or taking away. Nobody can speak for God today in an authoritative way beyond what the Bible says. Many claim to. And, and, and there have been many people who have predicted, well, the end is coming. There are many people who on television and other places over the years have given a date of final judgment. 
100% wrong. Hasn't happened. Prophets, 100% right. False prophets, wrong. That's why you stone them. Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Then Jesus adds this, Take heed, keep on alert, for you do not know when that appointed time will come. Be on alert. Today, instead of having this office of prophet that announces God's word anew, meaning speaking for God's word anew, uh, we have persons called uh, pastors and elders. They teach God's word everlasting. The eternal word that we teach. So, although scripture assures us uh, judgment is coming. Very clear. Scripture is very clear that judgment is near. That's how it's described. How near? Maybe as quickly as you pull out of this parking lot. For the individual could be very near. Heart could stop at any moment. Scripture always says it's very near. It's very near. Though it says it's very near, I don't have a date of judgment for you. I don't know what the judgment date is. But called by God as a pastor, he has given me a responsibility to preach. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says to proclaim. And Paul instructs Timothy and all duly called pastors, in effect, with these words. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and, of the, and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. It says, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. One of the hardest things a pastor has to do. And judgment is a very serious subject. Very serious subject. Have you forgotten about Tarshish yet? That's why I didn't give you all the stuff about Tarshish. You're just going to forget about it anyhow. We'll talk about that next week. But judgment is very serious, very serious. In second chapter of Peter, or excuse me, in second Peter chapter three, these are select verses, but second Peter chapter three, so you can go through and, and read through the whole thing, but they're in order, but these are select verses. Peter explains, "Know this first of all: the day of the judgment will come upon ungodly men and women." And the world will be destroyed. What sort of people then ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? How holy should you be when judgment's coming? The day of the Lord will come. Therefore, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. Again, he emphasizes uh, restraining ourselves from sin, being holy in conduct, when Jesus comes or when he calls us home, spotless and blameless. And in Peter's final appeal to the church, this is his close, the second letter, the final words that he's leaving behind for the church. Note that. The apostle, his last exhortation to the church. You therefore, speaking to the church, beloved, know this beforehand. Be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. 
but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Peter is warning, through his words I'm warning, that instead of us being found spotless and blameless, instead of that being the Christian's primary concern, many Christians today are being carried away by the error of unprincipled men and women. Unprincipled men who this same chapter of Second Peter describes earlier identifies them as mockers who mock our faith and who follow not God, not the Scriptures, not Christ, Peter says they follow their lust. They're mockers who follow their lust. He says, be on your guard. Be on your guard. They are not carried away. And many Christians today are following them, being carried away by them, meaning broadly, generally here in America, passively endorsing them. They don't even notice. They they don't even see what they're doing. Christians aren't Concerned with the word and, and holiness and blameness, blamelessness and purity. Judgment's coming, folks. Scripture warns us it's going to come on America. Now, we don't know if that's going to be by His return, Christ's return. We don't know if it's going to be uh, through an intervention by God. We don't know. Judgment is coming. Or there's one other option. Repent. Repent of the evil, wicked things that you're doing. The Bible instructs pastors to cry out against unrighteousness and to train up and establish believers in righteousness. Preaching from the Bible concerning what is right and what is wrong is a pastor's responsibility. And because each person has a vote influencing the direction of a city, a county, a school board, a nation, it becomes then your responsibility to tell those people what is right and what is wrong from the Bible. Your responsibility to know what is right and wrong. Unfortunately, the church has just been lulled to sleep lulled to sleep by sin, by indifference, by complacency with what's going on right now. We're complacent. We're just overlooking it. We're not standing against it. We're not speaking against it. And and, and this is a church issue because our nation and our children and our neighbors who do not know Christ yet, they're in peril of God's judgment. They're in peril. And our passage today, to cry out against wickedness, it demands that we talk about it. It demands that we talk about it. Not all sins are equally evil. All sins do separate us from God, because we're unholy, He is holy and blameless. Um, But not all sins are deemed by Him as an abomination that result in fire and brimstone and the decimation of a civilization. Not all sins result in that. And for some reason... People, again, not speaking locally here specifically, Christians, call themselves Christians, quote-unquote Christians, whatever have you, for some reason, they've become to believe 
that it is a pastor's role to make them feel good about themselves, to reinforce their self-image, and to pronounce all kinds of blessings upon people. That's a pastor's role. They've, they've been brainwashed into thinking. While they propose it's the politician's role to daily instruct people on TV what is right and what is wrong. Anybody see anything wrong with this? And in virtually all legal issues, virtually all, not all, but virtually all, politicians in government are writing legislations that, legislation that distinguishes between right and wrong. That's what they're doing, right and wrong. Where do they get that? So inherently, God's word judges government Consequently, whether government is good or whether it's bad or whether an individual is good or whether an individual is bad, they are judged by the church and by God's word according to what is evil. The church is not judged by the government. Thank you very much for telling us what we should be doing. No, that's the wrong answer. We obey God, not men. The word of God. But again, we've been so brainwashed, entirely brainwashed. People who, again, sometimes, somehow identify them as Christian, themselves as Christian, some are Christian, some probably aren't Christian, in general. We permit politicians and pundits and others preach at us all day long on television about what's right and what's wrong. They allow them to preach to their children about what should be done, what shouldn't be done, what should be enforced, what shouldn't be enforced. But boy, phew, I don't want to hear that stuff talked about from the pulpit. Can we just keep that stuff out of the church? No. No, folks. No. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Here's the point. Jonah's notorious failure was his refusal to preach against the wickedness, and to call Assyria to repentance. That was his failure, not speaking out, not calling them out for what they were doing. But in order for Nineveh to get spared, in order for them to, to be saved, Jonah had to preach. How could they repent if there was no message from the Lord? They needed to repent. Doesn't this register? It should for all of us. Judging morality is a church issue. It's not a politician's issue. The church in America shall take back that baton. We shall take back that baton. Shame on whoever it was that handed it off to the politicians in the first place. We'll take back the baton of, of considering from God's word what is right and what is wrong, and we won't have our families be told on the television what's right and what's wrong, unless it's coming from a person speaking from God's word within truth. For those of us who are Christians, we have the mind of Christ. We understand the things of Christ. And with that, we need to recognize that there are some political issues for a culture that may be for the better or may be for the worse. When I was a missionary to the state capital in Bismarck, North Dakota, five years 
went through sessions with them over that period and got to know a lot of legislators really well. I've told you before that there are uh, um, some really good Christian legislators in the state capitals and in our government. There really are. And I never once asked a, a politician to vote one way or another on a bill. And I won't name names of things. We'll talk about issues. But I never once asked, but I had politicians that would come up to me after the Bible study in early morning, they'd be considering a bill. It would have a lot of different things in it, a lot of different issues. And um, they'd be concerned, and there'd be tiered issues. Some of them would be added in that really aren't that big a deal. Others would be priority issues. And for the Christians, they'd say, well, there's some, there's some good stuff down here I'd like to write into legislation and vote for. In fact, if I don't do it, my home district is probably going to spank me. The problem is, some ungodly, unprincipled men and women stuck it into a bill that's also going to give license to abortion. That's what they stand, that's what they stand up against. And the good Christians had to prioritize what was important, what wasn't as important. The issues. And, and we need to realize that all political issues are not the same. Some may be for the better, some may be for the worse. Tax rates, speed limits, national parks, what kind of energy we use, school lunch programs. Folks, comparatively unimportant. You decide. You put them in order. Comparatively Unimportant. Not unnecessary, but comparatively. God doesn't really say a, a whole bunch of anything about these in his words. Some political issues really matter. Some invite God's judgment. So we'll speak to three issues today that invite God's judgment briefly. Because the Bible speaks to them. Number one, spiritual idolatry. As I explained last week, the northern tribes were being kicked out of their land, about to be kicked out of their land, and would suffer in, in uh, captivity because they're spiritual idolaters. That's why they're getting thrown out of Israel, out of God's land. All cultures uh, we know are, by nature, idolaters. All of them are. Everybody worships something, right? But for Israel, they were supposed to be God's people in Israel. But they commingled and substituted religions and combined them and did all kinds of things with them. They're idolaters. And in Revelation, both Pergamum and Thyatira, two of the seven churches that get letters, they're rebuked by Christ because they ingested things, sacrificed to idols, which caused them to go into, into immorality. Through spiritual idolatry, they valued things of the world more than they valued Christ. Today in our church, uh, we're just awash. We're immersed with idolatry. Immersed with it. Perhaps there's no greater idol uh, than self. In our lives, we all struggle with this, myself included. We're always thinking about exalting ourselves first. Not so much worried about exalting Christ. Politics is an idol. We see, uh, we see comparatively little concern about, 
or, or little concern about strengthening Christ's church, we see a lot of concern about strengthening our favorite political party. There's very much concern about the expansion of our jobs, the expansion of our economy. Comparatively, little concern about the expansion of Christ's kingdom. Very much interest for, for interacting uh, with the information gained from our favorite television pundits. Very little interest in interacting with information that's found from the Bible or from the pulpits. Very little discussion on that type of stuff. Preaching here, preaching elsewhere. We talk about other things. Great concern about what political issues celebrities prioritize. Little concern about what God's Word prioritizes. I don't really care who, who someone, whose celebrity tweets a picture of him or herself voting. I really don't care. Idolatry, idolatry, idolatry. We're letting that influence us. Christians have elevated our Constitution as the document uh, by which we govern our lives. Some have established it as a higher authority for governing our lives than God's Word. There is a very great regard for preserving our civil rights, very little regard for preserving human life. I hear way more talk about protecting my right to own a gun than I hear about protecting children in the womb. We've prioritized things out of order. Not that they both aren't important. This all reflects spiritual idolatry. Making things of man first. Priority over things of God. We've substituted uh, our own voting priorities in place of what God reveals as a priority. In many cases, you and I have prioritized an issue to number one that according to God's word, doesn't really even appear in the Bible to be an issue. Yet we prioritize it. This isn't new. You know, growing up on a small farm up in North Dakota, it wasn't, wasn't uncommon uh, during politics time, especially when it came to, to national government, to be up at the cafe and you'd hear the farmers talk about which representative or which senator is going to do a better job of preserving uh, the farm subsidi subsidies, the grain subsidies. And the talk was always about who's going to be stronger in lobbying for a subsidy to, to my family business. They, they put that number one. That's all they were worried about. What am I going to get out of it? Well, and in doing so, they made what God would view as a secondary issue, actually probably something like that, a tertiary issue, Possibly not even an issue to God. And they made it number one. And, and, and finally, and most convincingly, among Christians, there's very much discussion in the direction of what one politician or another, is, what direction they're going to take us in. Very little discussion about where is God taking us? Or where is God allowing us to go? That ought to be the discussion God judged Israel for spiritual substitution. It was idolatry. This transitions us well uh, to our next topic as a nation today. God sent Jonah to preach to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Basically saying, go to Washington, D.C. 
This isn't just about a city. And he, and he said to go preach to them primarily because they were a debased and a very cruel nation of bloodshed. Assyria was. They had no heart for others made in the image of God. The prophet Nahum, who pronounces God's judgment on Nineveh later on, into the future now after this time period, after they slip back into their ways again, he says to them in Nahum chapter 3, verse 1, Woe to the, blood, to the bloody city. Her prey never departs. I mean, she's never done with the blood. We are a bloodthirsty nation. Without remorse. Without remorse. 52 million babies have been torn apart while they should have been resting safely in their mother's womb. What an unusually cruel and heartless nation. And to think that, that, that people at all levels of, uh, of the news and, and in politics and other places, in celebrities, uh, they make a big issue of expanding the slaughter. Let's do more! Whew. Wow. Abortion is not women's health care. It's murder. I can show you that from the Bible if you'd like to visit with me uh, uh, at another time. It doesn't empower women. It actually enslaves women to a life of depression and remorse. Elective abortion must be outlawed immediately and permanently. Bottom line, according to the Bible, it's murder. Preserving life is a church issue. It's, it's also, by the way, a doctrinal position of the constitution of this church. Written into the doctrinal position. And uh, it's very clear in the Bible, that which lives in the womb is a human child that has right to living themselves. Can't argue that biblically. People will. You'll see blogs and stuff. Oh, it really isn't. No, it is. From the Bible, you look at it honestly. It's a child. Um, we know that. Thirdly, this will be the final of the three points. We are a nation of sexual perversion. We are a nation of sexual perversion. Fueled by Hollywood, endorsed by the media and politicians. It's unrestrained and perverted lust in our, in our culture. Perverted. Perverted. Boys and girls are groomed from a very early age by our culture and by our television and by politicians to immerse themselves in just unhindered adultery and fornication. I read to you earlier what Peter said, Be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men. In that same epistle, chapter 2, Peter writes, Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. What's the way of truth? The church? The Bible? Will be maligned by these people. And in their greed they will exploit you with their false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And listen to this. Peter then says, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. 
Peter warns the church that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah for their unrestrained homosexuality is not some you know, distant Old Testament story or fable uh, fairy tale. Peter the Apostle says that they are for us an example to know what to expect if our culture allows it to persist. America can expect the severest judgment of God. Severe as anything shown in the Bible. Save the flood. Yet last, just this last November, we've got the highest, highest place in our land just illuminating themselves with, with, with flag colors to just celebrate the gay marriage uh, proposal by the, by the uh, Supreme Court. How evil. How evil. Why would, knowing what we know, why would anyone, much less a Christian, play along with this? Do we believe the Bible? Yes. Why would a culture, much less national leaders that are trying to help a culture, even mess with this stuff? Why would, my dad would say, don't touch that with a 10-foot pole. Why would you even mess with it? I believe the answer lies in our passage from 2 Peter 2.2. This will be my final point. It says that many will follow their sensuality and because of them the way of truth will be maligned and in their greed they will exploit you. In their greed they will exploit you. The people who follow this life, the perverted life, sensuality, especially homosexuality, they're all kinds. They hate the way of truth. They malign Christianity. You see it's mocked every day on the television. They're always picking on the Christian. And they want the biblical voice of reason to be silenced. That's what they want. They want us to shut up. They want to remain in power. In their greed, they will exploit you. Why would anyone want young teenage girls to have free paid access to abortion and abortive drugs even without their parents' consent? Why would they want that? Why would anyone propose school curriculums that encourage junior high students to be discovering their sexual identity and experimenting, and experimenting sexually before they're even in puberty. Who would want that? Why would they want that? The Bible answers. It says so they can exploit you in their greed. They're exploiting us, folks, in our children, in our families, in our relatives, in our neighbors. There, there are people who realize, know, understand that if they can get a 17-year-old girl to have an abortion or convince a 15-year-old boy to experiment with gay sex, if they can encourage that and get that, that the guilt and the grief that, that accompanies that, that, that goes along with that, so chafes against the conscience of that poor child, so chafes it, 
that they'll reject nearly anyone after that who tells them that that behavior is wrong. They'll resist it. They'll resist any pastor who preaches the Bible. They'll resent any leader who calls for moral reform. They'll naturally resent it because they've done it. And unless they be born again, they won't change. Um, in their greed, this ideology is reinforcing their future, future political base by exploiting children when they're really young. Because they know if they can get them to experiment in this while they're really young, they'll have a really hard time parting from it when they get voting age. That's the truth. God said, Jonah, go cry against wickedness. But he ran. So we learn from mistakes made in the Bible. We're not going to run. The voice of Christianity is not going to be silenced. And at the same time, lose that next generation, including our children, our neighbors, our families, to moral depravity and God's judgment. It's coming. We will cry against it. We'll cry against it. We'll teach the truth respectfully in love. 1 Peter 3.18 We're going to plead for people to repent and be saved. As I said when I began this, there's nothing you have done, folks, that can't be washed in the blood of Christ except rejecting Him. He will make you white as snow. Scripture says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He lived in a time of very wicked people. Read about it in Genesis. Who Scripture says were disobedient and the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. God's been patient. He was patient then. He's patient now. He's waiting for you. During the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, persons, Scripture says, were brought safely through the water. The water was the means of God's judgment. The ark was the means of salvation for those eight people. Judgment came, not without warning. Noah preached it. There was preaching going on for righteousness. So judgment didn't come without warning, folks. We have time. But judgment came swiftly when it came. Today there's another ark. It is through the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. His body is the ark. His body is the church. You can be baptized into his body through the Holy Spirit. And you can be saved. You must be baptized into his body through faith by the Holy Spirit, regardless of what you've done. But you must acknowledge that it was wrong. It's the wrong path. You must turn from it. That's called repentance. And turn to Christ, the other half of repentance. It includes both turning away from wickedness and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he offers you forgiveness, complete forgiveness. Scripture says that same passage, 1 Peter 3 for Christ also died. One, it means he did many other things as well. He also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the Spirit. They killed him on the cross, yet he was raised three days later by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to do work in your life, folks, if you don't know him, if you don't know Jesus Christ. Noah built an ark so that souls can be saved from judgment. Jesus is building his church 
so that souls can be saved from judgment. And folks, this is a messed up country. If you want to escape it, get on the ark, folks. Turn to Jesus Christ through believing in what He did for you.